So we are in the Gospel of Luke, and we are walking through chapter by chapter. We're getting to the place where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And we've talked about this, and maybe you're tired of me saying it, but I think it's still worth repeating. From Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 19, for 10 chapters, Luke has been prepping his readers for a showdown. And Jesus is is leaving Galilee, and he's making his way down to Jerusalem. And you almost get the sense from the people that are following Jesus that they're expecting a Clint Eastwood-esque kind of moment when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And they are anticipating him to do something. And here he is, the passage we're going to read this morning in just a moment. He's coming up the Mount of Olives on the far side. So if Jerusalem's over here, he's got to come up the Mount of Olives and then go down and then back up to the city gates. And he's coming up the Mount of Olives. And I'm sure he's anticipating and everybody else is anticipating something's going to happen. Remember last week, he had to tell them a story about the kingdom of God to correct their thinking about what was going to happen. So with that, let's jump into the text today. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. The story that he just told, Luke says, after telling the story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. And he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And he sent two disciples ahead. So Bethany and Bethpage are little villages. And just to help you understand, it's not little villages like, um, like Stainer or Blue Mountains. These are tiny places. And he's coming to these two little villages just on the other side of the hill from Jerusalem. And he sends two disciples ahead. And he says, go to the village over there. And as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees who were there, these are the religious leaders, They said to Jesus, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, they keep quiet. The stones are going to burst into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem, he's going down the Mount of Olives. And as he looks straight across, he can see the temple in all of its glory shining. He goes down And he saw the city ahead, and he began to cry, to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side, and they will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place. 
because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation or your chance for being visited by God. I ask a big favor. That's my wife. She knows what I needed. Thanks, Claire. So we're going to have a bit of a movie theme going on here today. Because everything in this text to me just screams out the return of the king. The return of the king. One of the best movies ever made, and I realize now how old that movie is. And that's a little bit disturbing. But... I think Jesus is making a huge statement in what he's doing. So as we've gone through Luke, we've looked over and over again at all the stories Jesus told. Jesus told stories to help us uh, learn, to challenge us, to uh, uproot uh, our patterns. And he's a master storyteller. But maybe what you don't realize is that there are times when Jesus doesn't tell a story, he acts it out. He enacts a parable. And I think that this scenario here is Jesus enacting a parable for everybody who's there watching and waiting to see what is going to happen. Because he sends his disciples and says, go to those towns, and when they're there, you'll see uh, a young donkey. Thank you. You'll see a young donkey there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. And of course, we know they go there, they find the donkey, and the owners are like, hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And sometimes we're then like, oh, it's a miracle. And then you stop and think about it. Like, Jesus was back and forth to Jerusalem many times. He probably knew these people and arranged for this to happen because he's very intentionally making a statement here. And in that statement that he's making, there's a few claims. And as people are watching it, who are, um, you've got to understand that people in Jesus' day were much more immersed in their scriptures. So the Jewish people were very familiar with their Hebrew Bible, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. And there's sections in there called the prophets. And the prophets wrote about uh, the one who would come sometimes referred to as Messiah, sometimes referred to as the Son of Man. And these people are watching what Jesus is doing, and I think one of the prophets that they were familiar with would have come to mind. And it's a prophet named Zechariah. And it's a great read, um, and I encourage you to just go through it. It won't take you that long to read through it. But in chapter 9, I'm going to put this passage up here for us. And I think I took this from the message translation, where we read this. Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming. He's a good king. See, your king is coming. He's a good king who makes all things right. A humble king riding a donkey on the mere colt of a donkey. And people are familiar with that, but but sometimes when we get caught up on that verse, we miss the one that comes after it. 
I've had it with war. No more chariots in Ephraim. No more war horses in Jerusalem. No more swords and spears, bows and arrows. He will offer peace to the nations, a peaceful rule worldwide, from the four winds to the seven seas. And so some of you will be familiar with this passage. And you're kind of like, so you're like, why, why the donkey? Because in that day and age, when you were coming in and you were triumphant, you were conquering, you were making a statement, much like today, you don't come in in a, in a Ford Escort. No offense to Ford drivers, generally, um, or Escort drivers specifically. If you're Justin or Joe or Rishi, testing your political knowledge of today, you arrive in style, in a limo, in a motorcade, with all the people around you, guards and all the hoopla. And yet here's Jesus coming, riding on a donkey. And yet the crowd is receiving him the same way that they would have, like a Roman general coming back from victory. He'd be riding war horses. And so there's this idea that Jesus chose the donkey because the donkey is a symbol of peace and humility. But I'm not sure that's what Jesus is trying to say. Zechariah is telling us that. He's coming humble, and, it's, and we know that Jesus was humble. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's why Jesus chose the donkey. I want to invite you to another passage, and before we get to it, I just want to set it up for you. King David was the king of Israel. He was the king of kings. And you can read all about him in the books of Samuel in the Hebrew Bible. At least I prefer the Samuel stories. And at the end of his life, he's an old man and he's dying. And he's got different sons. David was a good king, terrible dad. So his family life is an absolute mess. And as he's dying, he's got half-sons, like half-brothers, who are jockeying over who's going to get to be king. And one of them actually does a power move to try to make everyone think that he's king. And, uh, and word gets back to David. And David had already promised his wife Bathsheba, her son Solomon, would become king after him. And we know in the line of kings in Israel, Solomon is the one who follows Jesus. <clears throat> but um, in 1 Kings... David says, get Solomon ready, because we're going to make a statement. And I want you to see this with me. Then David ordered, gather my servants and mount my son Solomon on my royal mule and lead him in the procession down to Gihon. When you get there, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet will anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the ram's horn, trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Zadok the priest... Did you watch the coronation? That song written by Handel is part of the coronation process. It's taken from this passage here. This is about a new king. 
And of course, Solomon becomes king. Everybody hears about it. And Solomon is riding David's mule. And then when he finally becomes king, Solomon does what any good king in that day and age would do. Goodbye enemies. Goodbye opposition. Half-brother, bring him here, kill him. And Solomon uses very normal patterns of politics and political maneuvering to establish himself as the rightful king of Israel. And those who opposed him got dealt with in the normal way. And then we come back to Luke 19. And Jesus, who is humble and who is gentle and who Zachariah reminds us is going to do away with the violence and the sword and the spears and the battalions and everything. We know this about Jesus, but he's also chosen to ride on the donkey. And I think that riding on the donkey has just as much to do with the first Kings passage as it does with the Zechariah passage. That Jesus is saying, there's a new king, but it's not going to be what you're expecting. There's a new prime minister, there's a new president, there's a new political party, party of three. Did you get that? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay, just. That's in leadership. And we demand your allegiance. But you're not gonna like the way we lead. And you're gonna struggle with our politics. And you read this passage, the king is returning, and then you get to this part where he enters Jerusalem. He's going, he's he's seeing the city. And you're expecting him to behave, at least his followers are expecting him to behave the way a king is supposed to behave. And there's this tension or this air of, okay, the people who have been been, uh, in the wrong, the people who have been opposing Israel, who have been opposing Israel's God, they better watch out. See, this is not the first time someone has come into Jerusalem making a claim to be king. There were many who did this before Jesus, and they were called revolutionaries. And they came, and they got up their followers, and they tried to overthrow the local Roman authorities. And usually what happened was, even if there was a tiny bit of success at first, Roman legions were just brilliant, and they just squashed them. And so here's another guy coming in that people are watching and paying attention to, and they're expecting much of the same thing. And then you read about Jesus as he comes close to Jerusalem in verse 41, and he saw the city. Let's look and see what he did. He'll smash you and you... No, oh, sorry, I... Yeah. You know what? I'm still there. Let's go back, Daniel. He comes into the city, and he does something that no one was expecting. He cries. He sees the city, and he begins to cry. And they're not the triumphant tears of a conquering king. 
This is, this is deep woundedness. And it's just so beyond anything. If you can imagine, you know, at the next election, and they announce who the new prime minister is, and the prime minister stands behind the podium to make her speech or his speech, and they just start crying. And the words out of their mouth are like, you guys just don't understand. You don't understand what you need. That is not a good way to, to win followers when you're being announced as the new leader. And I can imagine, with all the crying out in the hoopla, that there's a lot of people kind of going, ah, that's, that's not what I was expecting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit at a loss here. What's going on? And then Jesus says this to them. This is the verse I wanted. Saying, you guys don't understand what's going to give you peace. You just can't see it. Oh, how I wish you could understand. But you are so stuck in your ways, and eventually your enemies are going to come, they're going to circle your city, and they're going to smash you and your babies on the pavement. And not one stone will be left intact. All this because you didn't recognize and welcome God's personal visit. Some translations, what I have in my Bible here, says you missed the day of your salvation. And interpreting and translating is always tricky, but I think that actually misses the mark. Because this isn't about salvation, because when we read that, that triggers us into think something very different. This is about missing your visitation. And just sticking with our movie theme, they've had a close encounter. Some of you are old enough to understand that picture. It's an old movie. And Jesus is saying, you missed your visitation, your opportunity. God is right in front of you, but you're looking for a different God. The word that he uses for visitation, we can go back to the verse, I highlight it there for you. It is the word episcopes. And it's where we get the word episkopos or episcopalian, if you're familiar with that. And it's about overseers. The word literally can mean to be an overseer. Someone who watches over, who presides over, who has authority. And so there's this sense, the king is here. You have missed your visitation. It was happening right in front of you and you haven't even paid attention. But when you read this word, you also get a sense of a bit of, uh-oh, you're in trouble, the bishop's here. That's how we translate the word bishop. So if the bishop comes, in a lot of church settings, when the bishop shows up, it might be a good thing, but usually it's a bad thing. It, it's <clears throat> weird. It's so funny that we're wired this way. Some of you I come to see me, and I invite you into my office, and this is what you say. Oh, I'm going to the principal's office. And like, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I'd never beat anybody ever, honest. Well, just once, but, but they deserve it. And when the bishop comes, there's this sense of, oh, the bishop's here. And either something really good is going to happen or something really bad because they have authority. And there's a sense of judgment happening here. And here's this theme of judgment again. But you see, that word 
also has this tone of being a shepherd, being a caregiver, one who looks after. 1 Peter 2, verse 25, in quoting Scripture to talk about Jesus, Peter's writing to his Christian brothers and sisters and says, you were like sheep going astray, but you have returned to the shepherd and the episcopace, the overseer of your souls. There's this beautiful, wonderful, glorious thing happening in this triumphal entry passage of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. There is a very strong element of judgment that's taking place, of the overseer, the bishop saying, you've missed your opportunity because you refuse to entertain a new way of being, a new way of operating in this world. But then there's also this overriding, overarching, underwriting, all-encompassing sense of grace. That one who would be willing to say, you just don't get it. And I don't know how to convince you. But then in saying that, he's moved to tears. And he's about to offer them a new way of seeing. And he's acting it out for them. He is enacting a parable in this whole passage. And he's going to continue to enact the parable to its culmination, which is going to, in a few days, lead him to being executed on a cross. And in this passage, there's just this tone or this sense, not just of the return of the king, but of Jesus confronting the politics of power and violence in his day and among his own people. So that Zechariah passage about being humble and gentle and riding on a donkey is followed immediately by a God who is saying, I'm done with the war. I'm done with you guys resorting to your power and your your violence to get things done. There is a different way, the way that I originally wanted for you. And then hundreds of years go by until Jesus comes and acts out this parable. And I think in doing that, he is making a very strong claim to say, the new leaders here, you got to remember, it's not going to be the way that you've been expecting. I'm going to show you, I'm going to enact for you a different way of politics. And if Jesus is willing to use his way to confront power and the violence in his day, and he's inviting us to follow him. I wonder if there's something in there for us to pay attention to. Not just the violence, physical violence that we see happening in our world today, 
But the economic violence, the social violence, the emotional violence that happens in our homes, in our offices, on street sides, in storefronts, and factory floors, and we are so ingrained into assuming that there's one way of dealing with injustice, whether it's to you personally or to a whole people group. Jesus receives the violence against him. See, he's the new king in town. So like Solomon, he can just get rid of the people who oppose him, bring them here, we'll eliminate them, move on. Yet historically, he knew already, as we know now, when you conquer by the sword, you rule by the sword. And Jesus is offering a whole new way of politics that confronts every person watching what is happening. And so he responds to the violence, he responds to the aggression, he responds to the abuse of power by taking it all. And then putting himself in a place where they could take it to its full culmination. And to kill him, and to get rid of the king, and to think that they had solved their problem. And he takes all of that aggression, all of that violence onto himself, all of those sinful acts, those wrong ideas, onto himself on the cross. And dies. The king who cries becomes the king who dies. The whole new way of seeing power, of confronting power and violence. And then raises from the dead in a vindication of the very claims he made as he rode into Jerusalem. Jesus confronts the politics power and violence in his world. I think he's still doing that today. All the stuff that the aggression we have towards God, Jesus is saying, I can take it. And then he responds back with just monumental grace. And like so many people here in this crowd who would be one, one week, one day yelling, king is here, yay, and then a few days later saying, let's kill him. Because it's just so crazy to get our minds wrapped around what he's offering us. Not just our salvation, but a whole new way of living under his rule today and now. So there's this invitation to come to Jesus for everybody there watching. But in coming to him, it's also to assume his way of being and doing. And that's the rub of the matter, is whether we're willing to trust him, not just in who he is, but in his way of being and his way of doing, as he invites us to follow him. 
And in our world today, what a wonderful opportunity for us in a very Jesus-y kind of way to confront the politics of power and violence as Christians. But in his way, not in the way we're so accustomed to doing. And maybe that leaves us going, I'm not sure I like that. And we'll try to explain other ways around it. But if he's the new leader, I wonder if we need to pay attention to the way he behaved and how we live and be in our world today. And next week, we're gonna look at part two of this, that Jesus confronts the politics of power and violence, not in the world, but in the religious institutions, namely the church. But that's for next week. If I leave you with that, and trust that, uh, that God has maybe spoken to you in ways that you weren't expecting today. And just as we are, we give you our hearts. We come to you, Jesus. It is so sweet to trust in you. And may we be able to do that in every facet and element of our lives as a manner of experiencing the new life that you've invited us into. Amen.